listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Uh, my name is Clint, and I just want to, along with Mark, add my welcome. We are so glad each and every one of you are here as we worship together and open up the Word together. Uh, as Fredo read, we're going to continue our series this morning. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Luke 18, continuing our series, Jesus Stories, where we've been looking at some of the many, many parables Jesus taught. And there's one thing that's very different about this parable. We've, we're well into the series. We've read a lot of them. There's one thing that's very different that stands out right at the beginning of this parable. You know, a lot of these parables, they're kind of like a joke where the punchline is at the end. And so you got to read the whole parable, and then at the very end, Jesus says something or the master in the story says something that makes it all come together. But this one isn't quite that way. With this one, Luke, as he's writing right at the very beginning, he gives away the punchline. He says, this is what this parable is about, and this is why I'm telling you this. And so as I read this, I asked myself, why is Luke so clear? Well, I think one of the reasons Luke is so clear right up front is because the subject matter, prayer, is so confusing sometimes, isn't it? I mean, this, I know this isn't a very spiritual question. Maybe you're not supposed to ask this, but if you ever ask yourself, what's the deal with prayer? What's up with prayer? How does this even work? It can, we know we're supposed to do it. We do it all the time, but isn't it still so confusing sometimes? I mean, if God is sovereign, if God is totally in control, which the Scriptures absolutely say that He is, then what does it matter? And yet we hear over and over that God answers prayers, and God, prayer can God, cause God to act. And then there's this dilemma that I find in my life, and I'm sure you find in yours. There, man, y'all, there's things that we pray for that are great and good and scriptural things that seem to go unanswered. And so if we pray for people that we know are sick or our loved ones. We pray for broken relationships. And I've certainly got relationships that are broken that I've prayed for for a long time, but that remain broken. I pray for changes in my own heart. And those seem to go unanswered as well. And again, I'm not praying to win the lottery, although, Lord, if you're listening, great. I'm praying for what are supposed to be good things, and sometimes they just seem to go unanswered. But you know, plenty of times God does answer prayer. We see this throughout Scripture. So Abraham and Sarah pray for a child, and God provides that. David prays for protection while he's on the run from Saul. God provides that. Paul pray, prays while they're in prison, and the angel shows up and busts them out of prison. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Hannah in the Old Testament, which this is one of the reasons we named our daughter Hannah, because she keeps going to God over and over in prayer, saying, God, won't you be my provision? And God answers so why does he seem to answer sometimes and not other times? When he answered, is that because I got some formula right? You know, I went to Hogwarts and I learned the perfect spell and to wave the wand. Was I just living a more holy life at those times? And so God was willing to listen to me then, but not now. Prayer can be confusing. Well, in order to answer some of these questions <coughs> excuse me, we have about prayer, God tells us this parable. But if we're going to understand this parable, first we've got to understand the context. So if you back up a little bit, Luke 17, Jesus is talking about his second coming. 
the coming of God's kingdom. If you want to know what God's kingdom is, the kingdom of God is, it is simply Jesus' rule in our heart, where he is in control, we are living for him, we are responding to him, we are made like him, the whole world around us is made like him, and it all exists for his glory. That's the kingdom of heaven. And what we have here is a very simple timeline of how the Bible says the kingdom is going to come about. Do we have that up there? So Jesus, his first coming on the cross, he came in a very real sense, he brought the kingdom with him. And so while Jesus is walking on the earth, he would say things like, y'all, the kingdom of heaven, is it, it is at hand, it is near. And as he left, he, was, he said, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. And that was to fulfill all the prophecy that, that said, y'all, when the kingdom comes, his laws are not just going to be written on paper and stone, they're going to be written on our hearts. And so in a very real sense, y'all, the kingdom is already here. God is already reigning in our hearts. But in a sense, it's not yet here. And this is what Jesus is talking about in Luke 17. He says, I'm going to return. There's going to be a second coming. And in that second coming, that's where the kingdom of God will reign without rival and without competition. See, right now in this part that's already here, we've got some competition for our hearts, don't we? We've got sin. We've got our enemy, the devil. We've got our own flesh that, yes, sometimes we want to live for his kingdom, but sometimes we want to live for the kingdoms of this world or for our own kingdom. And so what he's saying is that the, the kingdom of God will reign in full without rival after his second coming. And so we say, you may have heard this before, the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom right now is already, but not yet. Some of it is already here, but it's not yet here in full. And so here's what Jesus is saying as he, in Luke 17 as he heads into the parable. He's saying, you and I live in this already, not yet, this space in between. And when you live in this space in between, y'all, it is going to get hard. It is going to be difficult. In fact, he compares it to the days of Noah and Lot. I don't know if you've read in the Old Testament what life was like in the days of Noah and Lot. This is no Disney movie, okay? Think more like Mad Max or The Hunger Games. That's what life is like. And so he says, even as the fullness of the kingdom gets closer, things in this already not yet may even get worse. In the days of Lot, we read in Genesis 18 that God would have spared an entire city if Abraham could find ten righteous men, just Ten, and they couldn't even find ten righteous men. And so what, God, what Jesus is saying here is, y'all, when we live in this already not yet, we live in this in-between, y'all, we're going to see things like what we saw in Sutherland Springs, Texas last Sunday. We're going to have these moments where it is so clear, y'all, the world is broken. Innocent will suffer. Evil will thrive. And each and every one of us will suffer. And in that space, y'all, it is easy to grow tired, faint, despair, give up. And that space, while we're in the middle of it, y'all, is going to feel like a long time. This is what Jesus is telling us. This is what he's acknowledging to us. And he's saying, so if we're going to live in this space, prayer is a vital part of how we do that. Prayer is going to be a vital part of how we live in this space. And perhaps that is why he is so obvious up front about the point. So to illustrate us, he goes into this parable. It's a fairly simple and short parable that really has two characters. 
And so to understand the characters, y'all, is to understand the parable. So let's look at these characters. We meet this judge in verse 2, and he's described as neither fearing God nor respecting man. What y'all need to know is that this was a saying back then, a very common saying, a saying for a very despicable person, the worst of the worst. So in the same way we may today say if someone's not very smart, nobody in here, but the other people we know are not very smart, we may say, you know, they're not the sharpest tool in the shed. When Jesus used this description, it would have been something very common they would have known. Say, hey, this is, not only this is not a good guy, this guy's the worst of the worst. He didn't fear God. That's to say he had no reverence for God, no respect for God. This is what the Bible describes as a scoffer or a mocker. So not only, y'all, are they immoral, they are blatantly and boastfully immoral. They say, they're the kind of person that says, you know what, I'm going to do whatever I want, and no one can stop me. Not only am I doing wrong, there's no shame in doing wrong. They didn't also do not respect man. This is a picture of someone who's completely indifferent to others. There's no sense of service, compassion, justice. It's someone whose heart is totally callous. So think the Grinch at the beginning of the movie. His heart is too small. That's this guy. And then we find in verse 4, if he does have one redeeming quality, it's that he seems pretty self-aware. He even says to himself, he says, self, I neither fear God nor respect man. Well, y'all, this is meant to exaggerate and highlight how terrible this guy is. He freely admits his own evil, freely admits it even to himself. He does not even try to hide it. So when Jesus would have described this person, it would have been fairly easy for his audience to picture. See, back then where they lived, justice was a hard thing to come by. Most of these judges were local magistrates that operated in a small region, and they were all appointed by Rome. They were notoriously lacking in morals, so picture today like a a mob boss or a loan shark. Really bad reputation. In fact, they had a title. In Aramaic, their title was translated prohibition judges. But what you could do is you could just change one letter, and and then their title became robber judges. And so that's what they were known for, robber judges. And so if you're known, that's what your position is known for everywhere as a robber judge, then what are you known for? You're known from taking from everybody that you can. So what these men would do is they they were paid large salaries by Rome. They were essentially sellouts. They were essentially traders. They said, yeah, we'll take a bunch of money to Rome to do their bidding, often at the expense of the local people. That wasn't it. Then they would often make their decisions, make their rulings based on bribes or their own benefit. So they're total sellouts. And people appointed to these positions, they weren't appointed based on their legal education, their knowledge of the law, their fairness, their care, and their concern for people. It was essentially a political pointee. It was a tribute to their love of status and money. They got their, that position because they were willing to do the dirty work for personal gain. We see in verse 5, you know, even when he answers, even when he does hand down justice, it is out of sheer self-interest. So again, not motivated by a sense of fear of God and God being the true judge and uh, respect for his law. He's not motivated out of any sense of compassion or concern for people. He just doesn't want to be bothered. So this widow comes to him and he says, if I don't answer, she's going to keep 
bothering me. In fact, in verse, uh, verse 5, that he says, she's going to beat me down. And this, the actual phrase is, she's going to give me a black face. And that has two meanings. One of those is like we think of a black eye. Man, she's just a boxer who's going to work me over with that jab until I got a black eye. And so for, for my own sanity's sake, I'm going to say yes just so she, can, she will go away. Well, parents in here, each and every one of our kids has taught us what this judge felt like. We have all been in Target or in some store, and here come the questions of, can I have this? Can I have that? Oh, look, a football. Can I have the football? No. Can I have the Legos? No. Can I have the Minnie Mouse? No. Can I have the stickers? No. And you finally get to the checkout line, and then it's like really, now we're really running the gauntlet with all the candy, right? No, 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 no. And each and every one of us, I'm guilty, y'all, myself included, has told our kids yes just to get them to stop asking. Can I get an amen? Yes. In fact, y'all may not know this, but God, I'm convinced, while he's knitting our children together in the womb and fearfully and wonderfully making them, before we even know them, before we even see them, he leans down and he whispers to each and every child a number. And that number is their mom's limit, right? 42. Kids, got it. That 43rd thing asked for, I'm getting because I've worn her down. I've blackened her face. I've beat her down. The second meaning can be uh, black in your face, kind of like we would say have egg on your face, a sense of embarrassment, uh, attack on their personal character. And this is a very real thing, y'all, because y'all, the widow's case should have been absolutely clear cut. The legal authorities in the day had a particular obligation to advocate for widows. They were legally required to give precedent anytime a widow brought a case. And so, y'all, even if the widow was not being wronged, even if there was no injustice, according to the Old Testament law, it was clear that something should have been done for her on the grounds of mercy alone. And so, this judge is worried, man, this widow's going to go out and tell everyone that I didn't do what I was supposed to do and take care of her. For example, Found a verse in Exodus, Exodus 22, 22 through 24. It says this, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. My wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Pretty clear, right? Remember, this guy's a scoffer at God. That's just a bunch of hullabaloo. I can do whatever I want. God's not going to do anything for me. So the audience, whose starting point for one of these robber judges would have been very low anyway, the audience is meant to to notice the unbelievable shamelessness when it came to God and the unbelievably coldness when it came to people of this judge. He's just a scumbag. Move on to the second character, the widow. We meet her in verse 3. This widow shows up. So bring a case before this judge. And just by virtue of her showing up, we know that this widow is completely alone. See, the legal system back then, it was a man's world. And so any male in your life was the one who had to bring the case before the judge. And so the fact that she is there, this meant she had no brother, no brother-in-law, father, son, cousin, nephew, distant male relative, or even a close neighbor to plead her case. She's all alone. And she comes and she says, I've got this adversary, someone who has wronged me. 
And so this may or may not have been something illegal done. Back then, there wasn't a police force. Back then, anyone, any two people who had a disagreement would take that disagreement to the judge. And it was up to the judge to rule, okay, you're right and you're wrong. The judges back then, they were essentially Google. They're who you went to to solve a disagreement. And so I was thinking about this. I was reminded of a, a disagreement I had with, uh, with someone back right here at Bethel. And I'm not going to name any names, but they happened to also be a pastor at Bethel White House. And it was one of my first t- days here, and we walk up, and I've got my name tag on my right side. He's got his name tag on the left side. And he says, you need to change your name tag. It's supposed to be in right. And I say, no, 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 you need to change your name tag, and I've got it right. So what do we do? We bust out our phones, and we consult Google. And Google becomes the judge and tells us who is right. I'm not going to tell you who is right, but feel free to notice where my name tag is. But this, you know, we, we have some clues that this isn't just a mild disagreement. She does cry for justice. That word justice is a word for vindication. Someone has wronged her and she's looking for vindication. And so the judge in that place had the responsibility to do three things to vindicate her. As an authority, he's to declare what is right. Uphold what she's saying. Uphold her story. Reinforce what she believes to be true. He declares what is right. He restores what was lost. When something was stolen, she gets it back. And then end what is wrong. Put an end to whatever her adversary was doing. And so the judge had to declare what is right, restore what was lost, and end what is wrong. God, I think Jesus is telling this parable because he wants us as his followers to know that as we live in this already not yet, there will be times when we cry for justice. We will ask like the widow, God, when are you going to make this right? When are you going to vindicate me? When are you going to uphold my side of the story? When are you going to declare what is right, restore all that's been lost, and end what is wrong? It's a cry we feel when someone takes from us, whether emotionally or, or physically. It's the cry we feel when we do our best, but we don't get reward, we get punishment. When people tarnish our reputations, when, when those we love suffer, and we feel helpless to stop it. The Bible is very familiar with this cry. You'll find this cry everywhere you look in Scripture. Just one example, Psalm 13, 1 through 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You've prayed that, right? Or something like that. It's the prayer of the 101 different struggles you and I face. It's the prayer that reminds us that His kingdom, in some ways it's already here, but has not yet come in its fullness. Pay attention to what this widow does with this prayer. She keeps coming, this repeated action again and again and again. Somehow, I can't explain it, somehow she believes against all odds that she will be vindicated, that she will find justice. Well, as a general rule, anytime you read a parable, the meaning is found in what is exaggerated. And so as we read this parable, the reader is supposed to be shocked, again, by the unbelievable coldness of the judge, but also the unbelievable faith from the widow 
that she would find justice. That's what Jesus is exaggerating here. So how do these two characters teach us to pray and not lose heart, like Luke said in verse 1? Well, the, Jesus is going to respond after the parable, and he's going to kind of ask some questions rhetorically, but ironically, I think these actions are actually the, these questions, excuse me, are actually the two questions I have most often about prayer. First question is this, we find this in verse 6 and 7. It says, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? The first question I have about prayer is this, does God always answer my prayers? Does God answer my prayers? That's my question so many times as I live in this already, not yet. And the answer from this parable is yes. Specifically, he answers with justice. This, the way he phrases it, this will not, it's a language that is supposed to imply an emphatic yes. So like you may say, is the Pope Catholic? To which the answer is emphatic, absolutely, yes. That's the language behind what Jesus is, here, is saying here. And the certainty of that, the certainty of Jesus' answer is found, believe it or not, in the character of the judge. But it works like this. It's not an argument of similarity. It's an argument, and you'll find this from Jesus a lot, from lesser to greater. It's an argument that says, if this is true way down here, then how much more, how much more certain do we have of God who's up here? And so as we look at this judge, we're supposed to know that everything he is, God is exactly the opposite. I'll give you a couple examples. This, this judge, he did not respect man, but Jesus, as he's saying he will answer, he says he will answer the cries of his elect. That phrase, that, that means those closest to him, the ones he knows and cares for deeply, the ones he chose. This widow was a stranger to this judge. He didn't even know her name. But we find in Scripture things like Moses, who God called him my friend. We find Jesus saying things like in Luke 12, I know you so well, I can count how many hairs are on your head. Think of the people you know most deeply and intimately in life, your children, your spouse, your parents, even more so than that. God knows you. The judge answers to get rid of her. The opposite is God answers to draw us close. God wants to hear from his people. In fact, he designed us to be in a relationship with him, to be constantly in communication with him. And it's really interesting. Go study every time Jesus talks about prayer, and this continualness is always there. It's almost as if God is saying, hey, I dare you. I dare you, see if you can annoy me, you pray so much. You won't be able to do it. The the judge, he just wants to be rid of her. God delights over our prayers. We don't sound like some pestering widow. We sound like a child he delights to hear from. The judge is reluctant. He withholds justice as long as he can. And so the opposite is, it tells us about God, he is eager to give justice. In fact, justice is his very character. No single wrong in this world can go unvindicated, and if it does, it affects his character. He can no longer be God. He can no longer be just. And so his very character is vindication. He will rule in favor of what is right. He will restore what was lost, and he will end what is wrong. So if that's true, 
Why doesn't it always feel that way? Well, it's like this. I want to bring this timeline back up. Remember, Jesus is telling this parable in light of the big picture, the kingdom of God. Here's how often, how I judge whether God answers my prayers or not. I usually do it based on a very small box in this timeline. And usually it's from a very uh, temporal, material lens. Usually it just has to do with my immediate needs. And so if you're like me, you'll pray, you know, well, will God heal this person? Yes or no? Will God give me this job I want? Yes or no? Will God free me from this sin? Yes or no? Will God let the Astros win the World Series? Apparently, yes. That's great. And based on the answers in this little box is how I judge, will God hear me? Is He acting? Will He bring me justice? But here's the deal, y'all. That's a very small box. And it is on a very different timeline than how God is operating. So does He care about our specific needs, wants, desires? Yes, absolutely. But He answers not just for the sake of our little box here. He answers for the sake of His kingdom, the big picture. God's purpose for prayer, remember, is that His kingdom will come. What's His kingdom? It's His reign in our hearts. Remember, His purpose is that we'll be made more and more like His Son, that His kingdom will rule in our hearts. And that's on a different timeline. I'm going to get this box off of here. So, does God answer prayers? Yes. God answers according to His purpose. God answers according to His purpose. And so while my my purpose is usually temporary and from my perspective, God's purpose is eternal and from His perspective, His kingdom. Let me give you an example. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prays, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. Did God not answer that prayer? Yes, He answered that prayer, but according to His purpose, which was our redemption, the only hope that we have. It was in relation to His coming kingdom. You know what? You know what's usually true for me? My, in general, my character changes very little when my prayers are answered for my specific little box quickly. When that happens, I tend to just stay the way I am. In fact, I'll say, wow, yay, God, yay, God, that's awesome. And then next week, I want to add something else in the box that I need. You know what often does change me? Often it's this process of continual prayer. That's what changes me. This perseverance in prayer actually in some way brings about Jesus' reign in my heart. It helps me change my perspective outside of my box and into His kingdom. So does God answer prayers? Yes, but He answers according to His purpose. And here's the second question I think God is helping us answer. Y'all, this is a question I have all the time when I'm praying especially when I'm suffering. And it's this, how long? How long? Several times he seems to imply that he's going to answer answer quickly, speedily, and it doesn't feel quick, does it? Well, 1 Peter 3, 8 helps us understand God's perspective on prayer. It says this, verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord... One day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. You and I don't share God's perspective. In fact, the Bible says over and over, y'all, 
that just naturally, our own natural view, we do not have a realistic view of the length or the importance of our life. That's why the Bible says over and over, your life is just like a mist. It's like the morning dew, it's here for a little bit, and then it's gone. God sees it. God sees our life, all of our lives, and the whole world from the, from the perspective of eternity. And then he says in verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, remember, he's the opposite from the judge. The judge is impatient, but God is patient. In fact, back in 7, he uses that word delay. That word delay can mean two things. It can mean slow, like slow as molasses, he's taking too long, or it can mean patient and forbearing. And which one it means depends on your perspective, right? So when we're the innocent ones, like the widow, the slowness, it does feel like delay. But y'all, the times when we're the guilty ones, when we're in the wrong, when we have the wrong perspective, the judge's inaction is actually patient and is actually making time for repentance. So God answers prayers according to his perspective. And we just have to realize we don't have the same perspective as him. But when we understand his perspective versus our own, the meaning of quickly becomes highlighted. And this is what part of what God's saying in this parable. He says, when I come, after I come, when we're in that fullness of the kingdom, guess what? You're going to look back. It's going to feel like it came very, very quickly. The closest analogy I could think of is childbirth, which is actually a common uh, illustration that God uses when he talks about his second kingdom. Now, anyone who's been through childbirth, I haven't, but you can tell me, does it feel quick? No, it feels long. It feels like it's suffering. It feels drawn out, right? But then what happens the second that baby is placed on the mama's shoulders? Man, all that whatever 47 hours of labor feels like a flash, right? And you're sitting there holding your baby. And in fact, like in a couple hours, the, the wife will look to the husband and be like, let's have another one, right? And the husband's like, two hours ago, you were threatening to kill me. What happened? You know, that's an analogy of what it's going to be like. While we're in the space between, man, it feels long. We don't have God's perspective. When he comes in his fullness and we gain his perspective, we're going to say, you know what? He came at just the right time. He did not delay in bringing our justice. But then, you know, we find out, so God tells us, yeah, he answers our prayers according to his purpose, according to his perspective. But then at the end of the parable, God turns the tables on us. He turns the attention to us. And he ends with a question. He says, well, I find faith on earth. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He says, hey, what I'm doing is certain. It is not in dispute. What is uncertain is what I will find when I get there. And this is interesting because all of a sudden he's talking about faith. I thought we were talking about prayer, God. Now you're talking about faith. What's the deal? Which one is it about? Well, y'all, it's like this. I didn't do that because some of y'all were asleep. Although, as soon as I did that, there were a lot more eyes looking at me than there were before. Okay? Y'all had some great reactions. Thankfully, no one cussed out loud. That was, that was, God does answer prayer. But I saw some jumps and some startling. I don't know if you noticed my reaction. Did you notice my reaction? It was very different than some of yours. And here's why. Your expectation 
your expectation reveal or your action, excuse me, reveals your expectation. All of you expected me to behave like a normal human being, right? Who is socially aware. But I didn't until your action revealed that. I expected the air horn, and so I didn't jump. Here's what Jesus is telling us. Prayer is the action that reveals our expectation. Your prayer is an expression of your faith. See, if you're just living what's in your box, your limited perspective, you will not persevere in prayer. It will feel too long. You will lose heart. You will give up. But if you are convinced that the God of the universe will one day come again, and when He does, He will answer injustice. He will declare what is right. He will restore all that has been lost. He will end what is wrong. You know what you will do? You'll pray continually, always, with perseverance. You know who prays the most? The one who is convinced that someone is listening. Let's say this. Let's say I come up to you and ask you, if you believe that Jesus was coming again, that he was going to bring the fullness of his kingdom, but you could not answer me with words, you could only answer me with your prayer life. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.